0: that you had to look up to see the bottom? Have you ever been so discouraged, so hurt, so pained, so heartbroken that you really didn't care whether you lived or died? You didn't care what happened tomorrow? You didn't know what to do? You didn't know which way to go? Where do you go from there? How do we get up when we're down? How do we handle adversity? In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul addresses himself to this subject. The Apostle Paul is well qualified to talk to us about adversity. The Apostle Paul is writing this, his first prison epistle. He's in prison. He's down but he's not out. He's down and on the way up. He has the victory over adversity. In verse 11, according to the eternal purpose, that in itself ought to encourage you, God has a plan. That plan will not be thwarted. God knows what he's doing. There is an eternal purpose. And that, my dear friend, includes you and it includes me. We may not understand it all, but he knows the beginning from the end. So according to his eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. By the way, you'll never have the great blessing of God unless you're in Christ Jesus, because God's whole design to ultimately bless is all wrapped up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read the 11th verse again. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed or planned in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think maybe that's a good place to start. If you're down and you can't get up, you don't know where to go, where to turn, a good question to ask yourself and be certain you have the right answer. Are you in Christ? In Christ, are you a part of him? Is your life hid with Christ in God? So much so that his death is your death, his burial is your burial, his resurrection is your resurrection. Are you in Christ? That's the ark of safety. That's where our refuge and our peace is to be found. Verse 12, In whom we have confidence and access, with confidence by the faith of him or faithfulness of him. Verse 13. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knee, I pray unto God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just give you three things by way of introduction to Paul's dealing with adversity. Number one, the Apostle Paul is in adversity when he's writing this. In verse 13 he says, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulation. So the Apostle Paul knows what he's talking about. Number two, Paul's tribulation is the believer's glory. Now, that's a little bit hard to understand. Paul is saying that whatever is happening to me is not a cause for you to be ashamed or upset, but rather what is happening to me is for your glory. Now, there's a relationship here that the apostle Paul wants to establish, and it goes something like this, that when one member of the body rejoices, they all rejoice. When one member of the body is suffering and sad, they are all sad. Whatever happens to us has a relationship one with the other. Let me see if I can illustrate it by way of testimony. Let's suppose we have a, a basketball team or any kind of a sport where they're involved as a team, they're looked at as one unit. If one member of the team, if one member of the team is not successful If one member of the team brings shame, if his activities are shameful, he brings shame on the whole body, the whole team. On the other hand, if even one member excels, if he is successful, if he goes above and beyond the call of duty, if he's applauded, they're really not only applauding the person, but they're applauding the whole team. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, now I am suffering. And this is not a reason for you to turn your back on me. This is not a reason for you to be ashamed of me. Now, I don't know why it is, but all too often we have been so brainwashed into thinking that anytime somebody is suffering something, something is wrong. And we, we almost shy away from people who are suffering. Maybe it's because, and I'm giving the benefit of a doubt, Maybe it's because we just don't know how to relate to people and we don't want to embarrass ourselves. But all too often, we've turned our back. We've sort of pretended that suffering doesn't exist. Maybe it's because we don't know what to say to people who are in suffering. I don't know what it is. But maybe, it's just maybe, it just maybe, that sometimes we don't want to reach out to people who are suffering is because somehow or another we feel they failed. And somehow or another we look at them as though they are bringing reproach and shame upon us. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, no, that's not so with me. Right now I am suffering, and what I am doing really represents victory, not defeat. Now the world would look on it and laugh and say, ah, we finally got him. We've got the victory over this Christian. But the believer ought not to look at suffering and adversity like the unsaved does. Suffering is not necessarily defeat. Adversity is not necessarily being down and out. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, what's happening to me is for your glory. It's something good for you. The third thing I want you to see by way of introduction is the Apostle Paul here is anticipating the believer's discouragement and adversity or tribulation. Now let's see if I can explain that. Paul knows that all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And you ought to underline that. That's a mental note that you need to make. All of those who will suffer, all those who will live godly for Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul is suffering, he's in prison. Paul also knows that sooner or later, and you can mark this down too, sooner or later if you live long enough, you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to have a time of adversity. You're going to have a time of tribulation, personal tribulation where everything seems to be coming down on you and you don't know where to go and you're so far down you have to look up to see the bottom. And you may even despair of life itself. Sooner or later, it will happen. Now, we've also been brainwashed today into thinking that becoming a Christian solves all of this. Somehow or another, people get the idea that if you get saved, that solves all your problems. Brethren, that simply may mean that your problems are just beginning. Now, it is true. Romans 8, 28 says that at the end of the road, all things work together for good. But that doesn't mean all things are good. So I'm saying to you just exactly what the Apostle Paul is anticipating and saying about the Ephesians. Sooner or later, you're going to have trouble. Sooner or later, that trouble will come, and it may come from the most unsuspecting sources. It may come right from your own home. It may come from somebody that you love, body, soul, and spirit. It may come from some of the places that you would never dream that it would come. It might be illness. It might be heartbreak. It might be financial reverses. There are any number of a hundred things that could happen, but sooner or later it will come. That's why this message is important. How do you get up when you're down? You're going to be down. How do you get up? How would you answer that question? Well, let me say Paul, I think, gives the answer. First of all, he prays. Please notice, verse 14. For this cause I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, I don't know what you see there, but let me just tell you briefly what I see. I see the Apostle Paul praying for others, And I think that's a good piece of advice. When you're down and you don't know where to go and you're not sure you'll get up again, for goodness sakes, don't hesitate to ask people who are believers to pray for you. Why are we embarrassed about that? Why is it that we're reluctant to even raise a hand and say sometimes in a service preacher or congregation, I have an unspoken prayer request? Why is it? Are we too proud to admit that sometimes we have adversity? I think Paul reveals a very wonderful intimate secret about personal relationships between believers. The Bible says bear one another's burdens. The Bible says to pray one for another. I think that it's our God-given responsibility as members of the body. Now, some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are ears. Some of us have different functions. We do not all have the same function in the body. And that's part of our body function, praying for each other. And so the Apostle Paul sets the pace. Did you know the Apostle Paul really is the pace setter for the whole church age? It starts with the Apostle Paul. It was revealed to the Apostle Paul. He gives the doctrine for the church. You'll not find it anywhere except in the Pauline epistles. The Apostle Paul, right at the top, is the pace setter for your Christian life. So the first thing is Paul prays for those who are in need. Please notice he considers it a family affair. Now like it or not, I'm in your family. And like it or not, you're in my family. Like it or not, we are members one of another. We are brethren. We are are members of the same family. And so the Apostle Paul speaks of the family, the whole family in earth and in heaven. I bow my knee for this cause. Why? Because he anticipates your tribulation and my tribulation. And we ought to anticipate it too. Now the Apostle Paul in that prayer mentions four things that are very important. And I think you'd do well to mark them down. And I think that this is the time to learn them. By the way, I've learned over the years as I've been preaching that you do not learn too much in adversity. In fact, uh, If you're going to have something to use during adversity, you'd better learn it now when things are going good. And so I think that's why Paul is preparing us. And I think he is saying, here's four things that will help you when adversity comes. Learn them now because when that time comes, you may not have the presence of mind or soul in order to cope with them or to learn them and then use them. So in verse 16, you'll notice the word that. You'll find the word that four times. You'll find the word that in verse 16. You'll find the word that in verse 17. In fact, you'll find it twice in verse 17. And then down in verse 19, you'll find the word that. Each one of those represents one of the four things that Paul wants us to remember in times of adversity. Number one. He wants the believer in a time of adversity to be endowed. Now the word endowed means to be given a gift. In this case, it means a a gift above and beyond, a gift that is not resident within ourselves. It is a gift, a ministry, a wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit to us when we are in adversity. And so verse 16 we read, that he... That God the Father would grant you, there's the endowment, an endowment is a grant, a gift, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now let's see if I can explain that. The riches of his glory. The word glory always refers to the essence of God, the attributes of God. In other words, when I talk about essence or attributes, I'm talking about what God is like. Do you know what God is like? Who is God? Well, my answer to you would be in terms of essence. The essence is the real manifestation of the real person. I would talk to you in terms of attributes, and I would talk about God being love, and I would talk about God being sovereign, and I would be talk about God being just, and I would talk about God being righteous, and I would talk about God being eternal life, and I could go on and talk to you about God. That's the glory. I could not ever come to the end of my list of what God is like. And that's what we we're talking about. The riches, the inexhaustible riches of who and what God is. So here's what Paul is saying. I want you to have in a time of an adversity, I want you to have an, an endowment that comes from the very treasure vault of who and what God is. How big is God? How rich is God? It's all yours. Here is an endowment from the glory of God. And by the way, it's because you're in the family that you have that available. Now, those who are unsaved, and there may be some here this morning who are unsaved, think not, my dear friend, that you get anything from God, from God. You get nothing from God unless you first of all come to the Lord Jesus Christ. God's blessings are upon those who believe. But those who are members of the family can draw upon those resources. Now, notice what it says. Here's what I want from the riches of God. To be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, the inner man is the new man. And that new man starts out as an infant. And that new man is conformed, is renewed, the Bible says, daily. It is slowly, hopefully, but surely being conformed into the image of Christ. It's a process hopefully it will one day show the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ both in us and through us. Now let me ask you a question. When you're down and out, when you're down and you can't get up, what do you need? I'll tell you what you need. You need to make a withdrawal from the treasure vault of God and you need a ministry of God, the Holy Spirit to strengthen that inner man. Because unless you get this withdrawal from the grace of God... You have nothing to draw upon but human resources. Let me ask you, how far will your human resources? How long will your your self-control? How long will your discipline? How long will whatever you can lay your hands on from the human point of view, how long will the flesh sustain you when you're down and out? Not very long at all. So we must have this endowment from God. Secondly, the apostle Paul is saying, I not only want you to be endowed but secondly I want you to put Christ on the throne. I want Christ to be enthroned. Now if there's ever anything that you really need when you're down and when you're suffering adversity, if there's anything you need, you need to be under the absolute control of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot afford to be under the control of your emotions. You can't afford to be under the control of human viewpoint. My dear friend, you cannot afford to be in, under the control of anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in verse 17 it says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now the key to understanding that verse is the word dwell. The word dwell means to settle down and feel at home. He is saying that when you're down and out, when you're in the midst of adversity and fiery trial. You need to have Christ settled down and feeling at home in your heart. And when I think of that, I think of a home. And I think of a home or a house with many rooms. And when Christ settles down and feels at home in a house, the house of our life, that means that he feels at home in all of the rooms. Now, we need to think clearly about this. All too often, our dedication and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ is only partial. How many times have we said to God, well, God, I'll give you the living room and the dining room and the kitchen. I'll give you this part of my life. But God, there's a couple of rooms over here. There are certain designs. There there are certain plans for my life that I keep locked up in these rooms. There are certain pursuits and certain pleasures that I want. And God, you're allowed to have these three rooms, but you stay out of these two secret rooms. They belong to me. In that kind of a heart, Christ does not settle down and feel at home. He is not in control of that life. Now, I'm not questioning salvation. I'm questioning dedication. And so the Apostle Paul is saying that when adversity comes, you cannot afford to be under the control of anything but a Christ who is sitting on the throne of your life. Now, let me explain that further. I'm expanding on the word dwell. Romans chapter 5 tells me this. Romans chapter 5 says there's a throne in your life. The last three or four verses, you can read it for yourself. And if you're reading it, you'll find the English word reign, like a king would reign. And the word reign there is the Greek word basileia, which means to reign as a king. And the Bible says that there's only two alternatives. On that throne of the life, Romans chapter 5, either sin reigns unto death. That means the flesh or sin, uh, the human viewpoint, the old nature reigns on the throne unto death. Or the Lord Jesus Christ can sit on that throne and reign unto life. And that's really what I'm saying. The Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. He is saying that when adversity comes, you cannot afford to have anybody on the throne of your life in control except the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, number three. The third thing you need when you're down and you think you're out and you don't know how you'll ever get up is love. Brother, if there's anything you need, it's love. Do you know... That God made you, God made you in such a way that it is necessary for you to love somebody. You're made that way. Furthermore, like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, whether we are too proud to admit it or not, the Bible is still true. The Bible says that God has not only made us so that we can love people, but he has also given us a need to be loved. We all need somebody to love us. And if there's ever a time when you need to have somebody throw the arms of warm, tender love around you, it's when you're down. When you're in the midst of adversity, we need that love. And so he says now in verse 18, verse 17, last part, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Now the word rooted and grounded implies this that the stability of your life comes, and the word rooted implies a tree. It implies a building on a foundation, grounded. So as a tree, the stability of my life comes when the roots of my life, the tap root of my life, not only penetrates the topsoil, but also penetrates the bedrock of love. That's my stability it's in that stability that I know somebody loves me. Even though friends may fail, even though family may fail, even though the whole world may seem as though they've turned away from me, I know if my life like a tree has tapped the, the topsoil and the bedrock of love, I know that even in the worst adversity, I can have stability. So what is the Apostle Paul saying now? Number three. He is saying in the midst of adversity, you need to be established. Let's repeat. Number one, you need to be endowed. Number two, you need to enthrone Christ. And number three, now, you need to be established. You need to be established in love. We can take the other illustration the apostle Paul is using, the word grounded. It's like a building. In order for this building to withstand the movement of the earth, in order for it to substantiate itself uh, through the tempests and the storms that come, it had to have a good footing. It had to go down to a bedrock. We call that a footing, a foundation. It's well-grounded. And it's in the fact that it's well-grounded that it has stability. And for the Christian life, the building of your life must be all the way down to the bedrock of love. Now, let's explain that love. Oh, it's amazing. What love are we talking about? Obviously, it includes human love, but human love can fail. It's always nice to have a friend or a neighbor or a family member to come up to you and say, I love you. But human love can fail. But we're talking about a kind of love wherein there is no failure. It's a boundless love. And so he does not leave us to our imagination to determine what kind of stability this love gives or what kind of love comes from uh, this. So verse 18, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. Now please notice the language that is used to describe the love of Christ. In adversity, you need to make absolutely sure you must know that Christ loves you. But how much of Christ's love do we know? Do we know what it means, the length of his love, and the breadth of his love, and the height of his love, and the depth of his love? Therein is our stability. But before we explain those to you, let me show you this. Let me show you that this love is available to all. Verse 18. May be able to comprehend with all saints. Again, just as God deals with us in salvation. When God saves us, the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. He could care less who you are. He'll deal with you just the same as he'll deal with somebody else. Grace is a made available to us all on the same basis because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The same thing is true in your Christian life. God is no respecter of persons. And if you're the worst, sorriest Christian in this congregation, that love is available to you. There is no such a thing as discrimination with the love of God. So he says, may be able to comprehend with all saints. Please notice something else. That this love is acquired through knowledge. Now God does not, God does not let you rub a magic lamp and say hocus pocus, rotten tomatoes, corned beef and cabbage, presto changeo, and he zaps you with love. It doesn't happen that way. You'll never know the love of God if that's what you're expecting. it doesn't come that way we'll never know the love of God unless we study the word of God and I want to show you something it is not a matter of private study of the Bible it is not a matter of studying the Bible on the radio or the television or through books the Bible teaches only one way for spiritual maturity and there are many scriptures to prove this we can go right over here to Ephesians chapter 4 When the Lord Jesus Christ went back to heaven, the Bible says that through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, he gave gifts to men. And those gifts through men were given to the church. And for the church age, again, Paul is the pace setter. Paul is saying in the church age, how is it that men learn about God? How is it they learn of those riches? How is it that they learn of the love of God? And that is through the ministry of the pastor teacher to a corporate body. Now, that may not sound very good, but it's the truth, and that's what the Bible teaches. Let me show you something. We're going to read verse 18 again. May be able to comprehend with all the saints. And if you'll look it up, you'll find out that means in the company of all the saints. And that's why I believe, and that's why I'm going to preach and insist that the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. You get something in a church assembly that you cannot, I mean you cannot, get anywhere else. Why? Because God says I've given gifts. Now those who have those gifts don't deserve them. Now we all have gifts. You have spiritual gifts. I have spiritual gifts. Others have spiritual gifts who are members of the body of Christ. Not a one of us deserves them. We don't earn or deserve those gifts any more than we earn or deserve our salvation. But God in grace gives them. And why would God give them? To mock us? To let them sit on the shelf and not be used? To bypass them? No, God intended that through these gifts, you can read Ephesians chapter 4, you don't need a Ph.D. degree to figure it out, that in order that the body of Christ may be established, edified, built up. Verse 18, may be able to comprehend, and the word comprehend means to comprehend by study. You do not get knowledge from God by osmosis. You get knowledge of God and God's love by study, and you get knowledge of God's love by study in the company of all the saints. Now, here's what the love is. Let's explain it very briefly. Time will forbid that I go into too much detail, but there are four dimensions mentioned here. God's love has a height, a depth, a length, and a breadth. Do you know what? That's miraculous. Now, I don't know, and maybe there are some here in this congregation that know more about mathematics and geometry than I do, but I am told that it's only provable. It is provable that no object has more than three dimensions. There is a theory, but an unproved theory, that perhaps some objects have four dimensions, but it's not proven. There's no way of proving it. You can prove three dimensions, but not four. And yet God says about his love, there's four dimensions. God takes you into the fourth dimension. You've never seen anything like his love. There isn't anything to compare it with. Everything you see has three dimensions. God's love has four. Now, I believe the answer to the definition of what is his length and his breadth and his height and his depth is found right here in the book of Ephesians. But let me give you another alternative opinion. When Napoleon... uh, was at the height of his power. He was very interested in archaeology, and he reserved at his own special command a whole whole core of archaeologists. And when they uncovered some of the catacombs in Rome, he sent some of his archaeologists in there, and they started exploring it and making notes, and they discovered on the wall a picture of a cross painted in vivid color. And at the top, it had the height. At the bottom, it had the depth. And on one arm of the cross, the length. And on the other arm of the cross, the breadth. So in very simple language, the artist in those ancient catacombs was trying to say, how do I describe this four-dimensional, fantastic love of God which we need when we're down and out? Answer, the cross. And some of you folks that aren't saved, brother, you are down and out, and you'll go out to hell unless you come to the love of God. Unless you come to the cross, Talk about people down in adversity. Nobody has it as bad off as an unsaved person. The psalmist David said that he was in the many waters of sin. He was drowning. He cried unto God, and God in love reached down over the threshold of heaven. And the Bible says that he lifted him out of the many waters of sin and placed his feet on the rock, the rock Christ Jesus, making his way secure. But I think there's another definition to the love. I think, for example, that the word, although I do not deny that, the love is surely represented in the cross. That's why John three sixteen still says, God so, no dimensions, God so loved, it's a boundless love, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son in death on Calvary's cross, on your behalf. But let me just explain, very briefly. I believe that the Bible teaches that the breath is the body of Christ. If you were to read Ephesians chapter 2, you would find out that the love of God in the church age has been able to reach around. God's love is much larger than just reaching around Israel. God's love has included Gentiles, nothings and nobodies. Read for yourself. And so now he created in this love, in the breadth of his love, he created one new man, both Jew and Gentile, in one body forever wherein the Jew loses his past, the Gentile loses his past, and now it's one body. We're a new agency. We're not an extension of Israel. We're not an overhaul of Israel. We're a new man. That's the breadth of God's love. Think of it. You'll not read anything like that in the Old Testament. Secondly, I believe that the length of God's love represents the dispensations. If we were to go to Ephesians chapter 1, In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we have eternity past. God says, I loved you in eternity past so much that I had a plan. And then in verse 10, he takes us all the way down through time to eternity, the dispensation yet to come. In the fullness of the dispensations, he says, verse 10. So God is saying in Ephesians chapter 1, all the way from eternity past, all the way to eternity future, all the way through the dispensations, I have loved you. And so we have the length of his love then I believe that the word for depth here refers to something else we find in the book of Ephesians. The word depth refers to our past history. God saved us from our past. God saved us from our depth. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's how far God had to dig. That's how deep his love goes. His love goes into the grave. Spiritual death. Furthermore, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 says that we were in past Gentiles, uncircumcised, without Christ, aliens, strangers, no hope, without God. you know the word there for without God is atheists? Do you know that if it weren't for the depths of God's love, we would just be atheists, atheists, no God, no hope. How deep is God's love? Deep enough to go after you. Deep enough to go after me. But then what is the height of God's love? I'll tell you what it is. Ephesians chapter 1 tells me that he has blessed us, members of the body of Christ, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we are seated with Christ. We are enthroned with Christ. I can't conceive of that. He takes nothings and nobodies, and he transforms us by his grace, and then he enthrones us with him in heaven. Higher than the angels. I can't comprehend that. What amazing grace. What height to the love of God. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, brother, when you're down and out, here's how you get up. Number one, you need to be endowed. Number two, you need to be allowing Christ to be enthroned. And number three, you need to be established in this love, this four-dimensional love. And finally, he says you need to be enriched. When you're down and out, you need the riches of God. You need His fullness. And so we read in verse 19, and to know by experience the love of Christ which path this knowledge. That's a paradox. How do you know something that you can't know? And yet the Bible says you can do it by experience. You learn it in the Bible. You learn the length and the breadth and the height and the depth and you come into it by faith. But once you know it and you get in adversity, then you actually experience what cannot be known. Sounds like double talk? Yes, to those who are outside looking in, but not to the believer who's experienced How amazing. In verse 19, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, now notice the next promise. If being endowed, if enthroning Christ, if being established, and now if we are enriched, then we're going to have promises. And these things really come to meaning, not when life is going good. Why even the unbeliever can go through life when it's going good with smooth sailing, he can whistle Dixie in the dark, too. But in adversity is where it counts. And so the last part, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God now unto him. See, drawing upon the fullness, the riches, now unto him that is able to do above all that ye ask or think. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. It would be wonderful if it did say that, but it says more than that. It says he is able to do Abundantly above all that we ask or think. Is that what it says? That isn't what it says, is it? If that's all it said, it would be more than I could contain. It's fantastic. But it says more than that. It says that when we are filled with the fullness of who and what God is and when we have a knowledge of His great four-dimensional love, then He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Friend, when do you need that? when you're down and about to go out. When you're down and you want to get up, that's when you need it. And then, of course, all of this glorifies God. Why does God do this for us? Why will God help us out of our hard spots? Why would God even care? He saved our soul and we'll have heaven by and by. Why even bother with it now? Because when the believer handles tragedy, when the believer handles tribulation. When the believer handles adversity in such a way as to glorify and honor God and in a way that God tells them to do it, then God is glorified in the church. That means people are watching you. I suppose you know that. I've been aware of it for a long time, and as long as you're alive, men look on outward appearances. And people are watching you. They're watching this church. They're watching individual members of this church. They're watching this preacher. They're watching this board. They're watching the Sunday school teachers. They're watching the members. And they're watching our constituents. And when we handle adversity right, when we know how to get up when we're down, by using the grace of God provided by Him, then verse 21 says, Unto Him be glory. Do you think you and I get a pat on the back? No, He gets the glory. Unto Him be glory. In the church by Christ. What an amazing statement. Throughout all ages, world without end. In other words, what happens now is going to also tell in eternity. Let's pray. With heads still bowed and eyes closed, please. Oh, how we're touched, honest. We're touched by adversity. We're all going to have adversity. I know people right now, I could name their names, people sitting in this congregation need our prayers, hurting like nobody else knows they hurt, needing needing your compassion, needing someone like Paul to get down on their knees and pray for them. How tragic when some Christians are too proud to get on their knees and pray. I think maybe my main concern this morning, if you'll pardon me, with head still bowed and eyes closed. By the way, the only reason I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes is so you can just be alone. When you're in a crowd, there's only one way you can be alone, and that's bow your head and close your eyes. And I want you to be alone with just the last few words I have to say. I want you to have them ringing in your ears, and I want you to think about them. It's just between you and me and God, personal conversation right now. I think the thing that troubles me most this morning is the fact that there may be Christians who have adversity, but they have Christ. But the thing that really gets to my heart is that there may be unsaved people, people who have never trusted Christ as our Savior, and you have nothing. The Christian has somebody to go to when he's in trouble. Who do you go to? Who do you go to when friend and family and neighbor forsakes you who do you go to my dear friend talk about adversity David knew what it was he said he was in the many waters of sin he's drowning he's a dead man but the love of God here's here's God's answer to the adversity of the sinner God reached over the threshold of heaven and he picked him out by grace picked him out of the many waters of sin and put his feet upon the rock, that's Jesus Christ, making his way secure. Do You know what you have to do in order to get that kind of help in your adversity? It's call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Unsafe friend, has there ever been a time in your life when you called on the name of the Lord? When you said, Lord, save me. I need Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray if there's any unsaved people here this morning that right now where they sit, they'll call upon God. They'll tell God the Father that right now they're believing in God the Son and He will set your feet upon a rock, making your way secure. He'll deliver you from the adversity of hell. Hell's on your heels. He'll do it. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And then as soon as we finish praying, I'm going to ask the whole congregation to stand with heads still bowed and eyes still closed. And we're going to sing one verse of just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. And if you've prayed that prayer of salvation, I'm going to ask you to simply step out of your seat and make your way to the front. I'd like to meet you. I'll set with you in private. It's the only way I have of knowing for sure you understand what we've been talking about. It's the only way I have of opening a Bible and making sure you know I'm not desiring to put anybody on the spot. We're not cornering anybody. We're not at all trying to embarrass anybody. But we're trying to do our job thoroughly and as under the Lord. We're not making it any show of the flesh at all. It's just a matter between you and God and those that God has set aside to help and to lead people to Christ. Will you do that? Let's pray first. Dear Father, we've gone as far as we can go. I believe, Father, I needed this message myself. How many times I've been down and out, and I forgot what I needed, and so I had to suffer. I really need this, Father. I believe that it's as much to me, maybe more so to my heart, than any person in this congregation. These are perilous days, the Apostle Paul said. Adversity will come. We need this help. Bless this congregation, bless those believers who will acknowledge this supply and resource given by the grace of God. And now, Father, for that one who needs to be saved, with head bowed and eyes closed, may the Holy Spirit prompt that individual to be saved. We've gone as far as any human instrument can go. We dare not go any farther. It would be sin for me to go any further. It would be sin for me, Father, to try and do what only the Holy Spirit can do. May the Holy Spirit lead some folks this morning to Christ. I pray.